Blog Talk Radio. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm your host, Gail Sylvia of Sylvia Global, and we are in Hong Kong meeting with an with an incredible leader of the Hong Kong people, the people of Hong Kong, representing them for many years in the legislature on the Legislative Council. Her name is Miss Emily Waihing Lau. Miss um, Lau was the first woman legislator directly elected by the people of Hong Kong a democratically elected member of the Hong Kong Legislative Council. She is the vice the vice chairperson of the Democratic Party, vice chairperson of the China Human Rights Lawyers Concern Group, and she was elected to the Legislative Council, the lawmaking body of Hong Kong in 1991. She served in the Legislative Council until June 1997 when the British government handed Hong Kong over to Chinese rule. She and other pro-democracy legislators were thrown out of office, but a year later she was re-elected and has been serving in the Legislative Council ever since. Emily Law, thank you so much for being here on Sylvia Global today. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm very excited to to have this conversation with you. I'm so glad we it took some, you know, coordination to get the schedules um synchronized, but you were quite committed to making sure that it happened and we appreciate that. So, thank you for being here with us today. Uh talk to us about the the issues that um that are that are most important right now that you you are addressing in Hong Kong as a legislator? Well, um, as you said earlier, Hong Kong was handed back to the People's Republic of China by the British government in 1997. And uh, at the time, the Chinese government knew that many Hong Kong people were very frightened of communist rule. So the uh, leaders in Beijing promised the Hong Kong people that uh, we would be allowed to run the place ourselves, although, of course, we don't have a democratically elected government, uh, but they will not send communist cadres to come to Hong Kong to run this place. And we can uh, continue to enjoy the freedoms, uh, the free lifestyle, the rule of law that we have been enjoying under British rule, Uh, for 50 years after 1997 and this is a promise from Beijing and now we are 15 years into this uh, you know one country two system uh, promise but there is concern that our freedoms are being eroded and that maybe the leadership in Beijing is getting a bit impatient and maybe they want to see one country one system So one big challenge facing the 7 million Hong Kong people is uh, is how to preserve our free lifestyle, our rule of law, which is what set us apart from the rest of mainland China. And, uh, And of course, we want to fight for democracy, because if we have a democratically elected government, it would be more conscious 
of the wishes and aspirations of the people. So we're we're trying hard to achieve all those things. Is the um, the challenge coming from just pressure the pressure of the Chinese government, or is it economic coming in the form of economic pressure or other types of systematic pressures that you're up against? Well, in fact, the central government has been uh, quite kind in helping Hong Kong to boost the economy uh, by sending uh, many tourists to come to Hong Kong and by offering uh, various kinds of uh, favorable agreements so that Hong Kong companies can trade, can make more money when they do business with the mainland companies. And uh, so some people say that Beijing has been very kind to Hong Kong. And I guess uh, we can understand because they want Hong Kong to continue to thrive and to prosper under Chinese rule. Because under British rule, Hong Kong was a very prosperous colony. And uh, I think Beijing doesn't want people to say that, ah, once Hong Kong is under Chinese rule, it collapses. So Beijing try hard to to uh, bolster the economy of Hong Kong, but then Beijing does not want the Hong Kong people to be too independent-minded and uh, to uh, challenge the authorities up north. So um, so while economically they they don't mind supporting us, but they also want the people uh, to be more docile. Uh, to be uh, less critical of the central government. And every year we have huge, huge demonstrations, particularly on July 1st, which is the day to mark the handover. And the leaders would come to Hong Kong to uh, take part in the celebration. But instead, hundreds of thousands of people turn out to march uh, to demand uh, democracy and human rights. And that's something that the leaders do not like to see. Are they are these violent marches, or are they generally peaceful marches? And who organizes them? Well, by and large, most of the demonstrations and protests in Hong Kong are very peaceful. Uh, but in the last few years, we've seen uh, uh, scuffles breaking out between some of the protesters. Uh, and the police, and the police are also getting more and more impatient. So uh, sometimes uh, some of these protests do turn violent, and some people, of course, got arrested as well. These marches are organized by NGOs uh, in the civil society. In fact, in the last 10, 15 years, civil society has really grown up so much and partly maybe it's in response to the perception that we may be losing our freedoms. So I guess that's human nature. If, if, if everything is chunky-dory, well, there's no need to struggle. But if you see signs of stress, of people uh, putting pressure on you, then maybe you want to rise up. So I guess there are you know, different groups seeing that... Uh, Things may not be going that well, so they got themselves organized 
and start uh, using all kinds of means to express their views and uh, to organize these huge, huge demonstrations periodically, and which were attended uh, by members of the public. Uh, so this is something that Beijing find uh, very uncomfortable. You know, we recently had on the show Sylvia Global, um, Chai Ling, and we were talking about the Tiananmen Square massacre. Is there the fear or concern that something similar could he, could happen during a Hong Kong protest if the Chinese police are becoming more restless? Well, um, I don't think the people here feel that... Um, there could be a massacre in Hong Kong, <laughs> but of course, one should never rule anything out. And uh, in fact, you talk about the uh, Beijing massacre, in which, uh, of course, Chai Ling at that time was one of the key student leaders on Tiananmen Square. And, uh, and then after the massacre, she fled overseas and eventually ended up in America. And I think the uh, people in Hong Kong had a hand in helping her and other students lead, student leaders to flee to the West and to mark the massacre in Beijing on June 4th, 1989. In Hong Kong, we hold candlelight vigils mm. every year on June 4th in Victoria Park. And just last week, or a few, you know, 10 days ago, uh, we marked the 23rd anniversary of the Beijing massacre. And 180,000 people turned out uh, to attend the candlelight vigil in Victoria Park. And uh, the Patriotic Alliance, uh, which organized the candlelight vigil, raised almost... 2.4 million Hong Kong dollars that evening. And that shows you that 23 years after the event, the Hong Kong people would neither forgive nor forget. And they would turn out in huge numbers to mark the occasion. And of course, what we want is for a, an investigation of what happened and for those people who've suffered so much uh, to get compensation and for the whole thing to be rehabilitated. How did, that's, um, you know, again, I, this is a wonderful insight that you're providing for those of us who are outside of Hong Kong. That, what you just described, is reflective again of what is now one country but two systems, you know, and two different political views existing. And, um, the fact that that could still happen and be, you know, there could be an anniversary acknowledging and demanding a, an investigation 20, 23 years after the fact means that it's still very close to people's hearts and minds. It has not been forgotten, nor will it be allowed to be forgotten. Exactly. And, and, and you're right. The, so long as we can continue to hold these candlelight vigils, uh, every year, it, it it shows there is one country, two systems, because such commemoration can never be held in the mainland. Uh, we, we've seen on the news 
report of you know small incidents of people in various cities and provinces in the mainland trying to hold some event to mark the occasion, and inevitably either they were arrested or they were stopped, so people cannot do it in the mainland. And Hong Kong, although it is part of the People's Republic of China, it is still free to hold such huge, huge, huge demonstrations. And that, of course, has caused big embarrassment to Beijing. But uh, I remember several years ago, uh, some journalists asked the foreign minister in Beijing about, you know, holding such event in Hong Kong and asked whether the Hong Kong people would be arrested for doing so. And I guess the foreign minister had a sense of humor because he said, we don't have such large prisons. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> how was it? How was that interpreted, and what was the response to that type of comment? Well, I think the people just laughed. They laughed, yeah. Uh, we I, to- I think we don't expect to be arrested mm-hmm. in the immediate future, mm-hmm. but of course, things can turn nasty. Yes. quite quickly and uh, and uh, so i guess we we are all wary but uh, in spite of that we will continue with the struggle what would be the most radical change that you could see um that could keep in place the demo- democratic processes even as that 50 year deadline approaches Well, I think what we have been fighting for, and it is even included in the basic law, which is a mini-constitution for Hong Kong, drafted by Beijing, is that, um, you know, we can elect our own government by one person, one vote. But uh, we are still waiting for that day to come. And also, I tell you, I'm a member of the Legislative Council. We only have 60 members, which is a very small council for a population of 7 million. Mm. But out of the 60, 11 members, including me, of course, have not been allowed to travel to mainland China for more than 20 years. Actually, that's one of the questions. We have a lot of calls coming in, and one of the questions that um, I was told to ask you is, is it true that you have not been allowed to travel to mainland China for over 20 years? It's true, and there are 11 of us in the Legislative Council uh, who got this treatment, uh, which is completely ludicrous. I mean, I am a Chinese citizen, and uh, what right have they got uh, to ban me? But then they've, they've been doing it for more than two decades. Really, it's it's utterly, utterly disgraceful. And is it because of the political stance and there's fears that you'll influence other leaders or other, you know, the large bodies of population toward a um, democratic role? I guess so. I mean, some people would say, oh, what what, what freedoms we enjoy here uh, could be like a cancer. Mm. It can spread to the rest of the country. Uh, But the Chinese government has never publicly told us why we have been banned. I remember asking the chief executive, Mr. C.H. Tong, who is the head of the government, when I was re-elected to the Legislative Council in 1998. 
I asked him uh, to help us to get back our home visit permit so that the whole council can go and take a look at the developments in mainland China. And you know what CH said to me? What did they say? He said, Emily, don't talk too much. Take a step backward. I said, CH, what's the matter with you? I said, I'm elected by the people to represent them. Of course I have to speak out. And then he said, Emily, just don't talk too much. Take a step. No, take three steps backward. I said, CH, are you crazy? (laughs) Why should I? But that's the attitude. That's the attitude of the person in charge of the Hong Kong government. That's what he told me. And then a few years ago, I was in Geneva attending some UN uh, Human Rights Committee hearing. And, of course, the Hong Kong team was led by the Chinese ambassador. But under one country, two systems, the central government allowed the Hong Kong government team to answer questions on the Hong Kong report, which was submitted independently of the Chinese report, which, again, is something quite exceptional. And then I bump into the ambassador on the co- in the corridor at the UN, Ambassador Shah. So I went up to him and said, Ambassador, I said, I'm Emily Lau from Hong Kong, legislative counselor. And he said, I know you. I said, Ambassador, how come I'm not allowed to go to mainland China? What is the central government afraid of? Why is it that I've been banned for so many years? And you know what he said to me? He said, well, if you perform better, maybe you'll be allowed to go. I said, ridiculous. I've been elected by the people of Hong Kong in 
are men. And I'm not saying women are better than men, but we think we look at things differently. So I think it is very important and it would be beneficial to all humankind if the leadership, whether it is in business or in politics, consists of both men and women, half and half. I think the decisions coming out of that sort of leadership will be better than the decision made just by men. What would be the added value of that mixed voice in those mixed perspective, you know, that that mixed per, um, perspective of men, women and men? Give an well, example be, of how you see that diversity of voices. I think even if you look at women, the things that they regard as important may be quite different from the things that men regard as important. I've looked at studies done showing that women care more about health, about education, about protecting the environment. And and these issues may get overlooked if you have a committee mainly of middle-aged men making decisions. So I think that, you know, there are many things in life that the people care about. But if you have the leadership, it's just only representing half of the population, then you, it, the, the fear is that the interests of the other half would be neglected. But I think even in Hong Kong, I faced this very difficult problem. I told you when I stood for election, the electorate were very, very kind. They didn't care about the gender of the candidates. But I understand that when women want to stand for election or want to go into public life, many of them do not get much support from their family and from their friends. Instead, many will say, oh, come on, are you sure you want to do that? You have to look after the kids. Who's going to look after grandma and your husband? You have to fix the dinner, and you have to do this and do that. And after all that, you won't have time to go into public life. But if a man wants to do those things, people would not put all those hurdles there. So I hope that your listeners, whether you are men or women, will not tell this to a young or a very, very ambitious lady who come and say, hey, I want to go into public life. Well, encourage her. Tell her, go along. Somebody else will look after the family chores. Men and women should share the responsibility. Oh, I think this is the big uphill battle. Are there organizations in Hong Kong that um, advocate advocate for women to run for elected office? Mm, not really. That's the other tragedy. In fact, in Hong Kong, there are there are very few organizations which advocate people going into an electoral office because in Hong Kong we cannot elect our government. Beijing doesn't allow us. So, I mean, there are a few political parties formed, but these political parties can never take power. In fact, I always say there is only one reason for forming a political party, and that is to seize power, to form the government. But in Hong Kong, we cannot do it. And, and so the young, bright people will say, why do I want to go into politics? It's a dead-end street. I will not be able to run the place. 
So um, I guess Beijing knows this is one way of discouraging the people to go into politics here. There are some other questions from callers. One of them is, can you talk about the influence that your foreign education has had on your life and your decisions? Well, I went to university in uh, University of Southern California. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> <laughs> you graduated with your um, bachelor's from there in broadcast journalism, isn't that? Is that's that right. That's oh. right. And I, 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 and I, I went to the stadium to watch American football almost every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love American football. Anyway, and and during that time, which was long, long time ago, uh, it was the time of Watergate. I guess some of your young listeners probably do not remember that. But that made a very strong impression on me. And I remember many young people rushing into university uh, to study journalism because they want to be like Woodward and Bernstein and to write reports for the Washington Post, which would topple the president. And uh, and because of that, I mean, I, I became a journalist. And uh, so that I think that has made some uh, very, very big mark on me. And then I went to the University of London, the London School of Economics, to study international relations. And also I got very interested in international politics. And uh, so uh, I think uh, uh, this overseas experience is, is very good for me. But after all that, I decided to go back to Hong Kong to work in Hong Kong uh, to fight for democracy. But I also like to maintain links and contacts with the international community because I know that Beijing cares about international public opinion. So I, I, I thank you very much for talking to me uh, so that your people here in America and elsewhere can hear my voice. And, uh, and, 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 and I, I hope that they will know how awful Beijing is in banning us. Is there, uh, are there steps that foreigners can take to support the democratic movement of Hong Kong? Yes, of course. I think the best thing you can do is to talk to your government or to your members of Congress, members of Parliament, and ask them to take this up with Beijing. Or if you have uh, international organizations, ask them to take this up. Beijing may be very angry with me because they think I am inviting uh, overseas international uh, foreign interference in Chinese affairs. But I think that issues of democracy and human rights transcend national boundaries. So I'm not afraid. And I, I call on people from all over the world to take an interest, not just in what's happening in Hong Kong, but at in happenings elsewhere, I think we should all care about human rights violations anywhere on earth. So if, if we have friends of Hong Kong overseas, I hope that you will take this up in your own way. But one way, of course, is talking to your government. These are basic freedoms that we often take for granted. That's true. And, uh, and so when you look at us, then you should also re-examine your own position. Maybe one day you may, you'll be like us. Uh, you may be free today. Uh, there's no guarantee that you'll be free forever. 
Another, that's a very important statement that you just made. I'm going to um, ponder that and let you res- while you respond to another listener question. What are the security risks and threats that you have to live with, given your outspoken political position? Well, right now, I do not feel that I uh, my personal liberty is at stake and I am in any form of danger. Because right now it's 11 p.m. Hong Kong time. I'm talking to you from the Legislative Council building because our sitting just ended one hour ago. And, of course, outside is very dark. And when I finish this conversation with you, I will walk out into the darkness, try to catch a taxi and go home but I will feel very safe. But having said that, I must report to you that I think not just myself, but members of the pro-democracy movement are all under surveillance by the central government. So what I mean is they know uh, what we're up to, they know whom we communicate with, including your good self, Gail, and uh, so they follow all our movements, I think they uh, monitor our emails, our phone calls, and they always collect uh, information about us, particularly if it is something very embarrassing that we don't want people to know about. They collect it, and at the right moment, uh, they will release it to the media and to destroy us. But you continue to stay committed. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that's the problem. That's that's something that they hate. They think they everyone you, has. To, <laughs> they can't seem they, to get to silence you or make you go two or three steps back. <laughs> I think the people in Beijing think that everyone has a price, and they offer pretty handsome rewards to people who would like to turn, but then to their shock and horror they find out that some people are priceless. Hmm. How, did, how did you grow up? Uh, what's, your, what's your background, and who were the people that influenced you to be so tenacious? Well, actually, um, my, my, my father died. when he ca- They came from mainland China, my parents. But he died when I was very young, and then my mom mom did did not have any money, so she had to work as a domestic servant for the rich people to support us, and we did not have a home. So I, myself, and my two elder brothers, we were sort of scattered amongst our relatives. Uh, We lived with one family for one year and then moved to another for another two years and so on. And so I guess that sort of, uh, you know, upbringing uh, made us very independent. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then when I finished high school, my brother uh, got, you know, he got a good job. And then he sent me to America to study. So I don't know who influenced me. And, uh, but I guess maybe I got this from my mother. She's a very tough woman. She was not educated but she's very tough and fearless. And uh, so uh, uh, I, I think I must have got it from her. I think she's very proud of you. 
Yeah, are I you... think so, but but unfortunately, she passed away quite quite a long time ago. Uh, I mean, she had a very tragic life. Uh, she worked so hard to bring up the three children, and then she got emphysema, and she got sick, and uh, it's very sad. But I, I, I'm sure she's proud of me and of my brothers. But you managed to get an education and to get a very extremely good education abroad and then come back and serve in a leadership capacity. How, you know, did what messages did you give to yourself or were given to you by others that made this possible for you to keep going and to continue to do this work at a level on behalf of others? Well, I I always, you know, I go to schools to talk to the kids, and I told them about my poor childhood, and I said, you know, I was lucky uh, to get the support from my family, and uh, but I think it is important that young people uh, should be encouraged and to uh, try to uh, strike out and uh, to hold their future in their hands. And I particularly told the young girls to make sure that they don't have children too early on because that would tie them down and they need to be to have a good education and to be financially independent to have their own career and go into politics mm-hmm. i always teach i urge young people to do that because so few people talk to them in that way and i told them you know in my in my upbringing nobody did it to me but now i am urging you to hold your future in your hands, and you are going to become an elected politician and help to run Hong Kong. Emily, um, I wish we had more time. I hope that you'll be willing to come back on the show. I do have two additional questions that I want to ask you. Uh, One of them is, can you talk about some of the awards that you've received and why these recognitions were bestowed upon you. You received the Bruno Kresge Human Rights Award um, in Vienna. You received another incredible award for freedom of speech from the University of Uppsala in Sweden. And you received political leadership awards from the Hong Kong Women's Foundation. Can you speak about the significance of those recognitions? Well, I guess uh, I'm, of course, very grateful to those organizations for offering the awards to me. The uh, the Bruno Kreisky Award was given to me the year after I was chucked out of the Legislative Council. So I guess that was an encouragement for me. And the uh, the uh, Freedom of Speech Award from Sweden is something that is, of course, very, is very good uh, because they know that we in Hong Kong and me being a former journalist, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of expression is something very important. And so I thank them for that. And the Hong Kong Women's Foundation, uh, I, I think they're very kind. They offer me the award to uh, sort of to uh, as as a sign of their you know recognition of the all these years of struggle uh, that I that I did. And uh, but uh, I think the 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 important thing is the people's recognition and. Uh, and and this is done by via the ballot box. Uh, we are going to have elections again in September this year, and uh, I'm planning to stand again. And it is uh, it is invigorating 
when you get the people's support and when the votes come in and you get elected, re-elected, uh, and that is a that is a stunning experience. Mm. A closing question: Women and girls, one China's one-child policy. Can you speak about that, especially in reference to your comment a moment ago about encouraging, you know, girls not to become pregnant too young? Yes, I mean, you you want me to comment on China's one-child policy? Yes. Well, I of course hope that uh, the uh, parents in mainland China would have the freedom uh, to have a family and to choose how many family members they want. But, of course, I also understand about the uh, population problem. So uh, the best thing is to teach, to encourage uh, family planning. And especially if you look to countries which have uh, become very prosperous, Many of them, uh, the women don't want to have children because they want to have their own lives. So I don't think the Chinese government need to be that worried. Uh, but it is important for us to encourage and to remind young girls, young ladies, uh, not to rush into having babies too early. Of course, by all means, have children, but not yet. Uh, I hope they will find time to establish their career uh, before they they, they uh, want to start having a family. And uh, it is important because we want to see more women in high position, whether it is in business and commerce or in politics. And uh, if they get to have young babies very early on, they may not be able to establish uh, their career. Emily? Lau, thank you so much for being here today on Sylvia Global. I appreciate your time and the insight, and we hope that you'll come back again after you're reelected um, into office. Um, thank you so much. Um, again, in closing, can you just share with the audience around the globe how we can support uh, women in elected office in Hong Kong? Well, I hope that uh, you will tell the Chinese government a, to let us all go to mainland China and to let Hong Kong people have the right to elect their government democratically and to make sure that the Hong Kong people can continue to enjoy the freedoms and the rule of law. If you tell the Chinese government that, you'll be doing us a big favor. Thank you very much. Have a good evening, and thank you for being here on sylviaglobal.com. This broadcast is available on iTunes as a podcast. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Again, Emily Law, first woman legislator directly elected to, by the people to the Hong Kong legislator, legislation, le, Legislative Council. I got it right, Legislative Council. Thank you so much, and good night. Oh, thank you.